Sign up to Rough Trade Club, the ultimate subscription for vinyl enthusiasts. Get money off online and in store and access to sold out events and discounts at Rough Trade East, Rough Trade West, Bristol, Liverpool and all over the UK. Join Rough Trade Club plus new music to receive an exclusive variant of their album of the month every month. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and when you use the voucher code club101pod, you'll get a third off your first three months. That's at roughtrade.com slash club and you can get a third off your first three months by using the voucher code club101pod. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads. And artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify. Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz. And I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bitter. I'm joined by one of the greatest musicians in the world, Chili Gonzalez, who has just announced a very chilly Christmas special which is going to be aired on the 23rd of December. It's the 20th of December today. It features Jarvis Cocker and a whole load of other amazing people. In fact, this is what Chili had to say about it himself. I'm really, really proud of it. I think we really made something amazing. And it really, it actually really embodies the spirit of what we're talking about. It's made in a sort of childlike way with, with musical family. And it just turned out so much better than we could have hoped, to be honest. <laughs> so there's Chili Gonzalez calling my podcast Childlike. Do tune into that. Obviously, you can find all the details there on his socials uh, or go onto his site, chiligonzalez.com, even better. Again, that's happening in three days on the 23rd of December. Three non-replayable 
Ticketed screenings, it's 10 bucks a piece. I have no idea. I haven't checked the exchange rate for a, for a little while, but I believe that's probably eight or nine pound. And I think that is a, that's a deal. So go ahead and do that. East London Signature Brew have been brewing music-inspired beers since 2011. They've brewed beers with Mastodon, Idols, Slaves, Sports Team. Done one this Christmas with The Darkness. That one's called Bell's End, obviously. If you go onto their website, signaturebrew.co.uk, you can order their beers directly to your house. And if you use the voucher code 101podcast, all capitals, at checkout, then you can get 10% off. So go ahead and do that. Hope everyone's staying safe. Don't forget a very chilly Christmas special this Wednesday. I'll see you, not see you there. Go well. Cheers. Oh, and if you like this podcast, if you like this conversation, please do let your friends know. Please do pass it on. That's the way the show grows. It's the way that I can get more guests on. So when I email these big, illustrious people trying to get someone awesome on the show, I can say, look, these people listen to the show so we can get more chats on. Thank you so much. As always, if you want to let me know who you want to hear on this show, Get at me on Twitter, 101 Part Time Pod, or Instagram, 101 Part Time Jobs Podcast, and, and let me know who you want to hear. Thank you for listening. Here's Gons. Mr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for, for being up for, for doing this, this episode with me. It's my pleasure. This podcast is all about art and sacrifice. So it started off my background is playing in bands, you know, rock bands, punk rock bands. And the Minutemen, that punk rock band, they had We, we Jam Econo. We'll work by daytime and, and play music by night. And of course, that's a similar situation for, for all musicians. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is a feeling that if you want to uh, make a career out of just what's in your brain, which is to say pretty much anything relating to the arts, uh, that you're trying to get away with something, you know, there, there is a feeling. And in some ways, I do believe that if you do manage to break that barrier and finally live from just what's in your brain, you have kind of won the lottery of life because you won't really have a boss. And I think that's probably the big difference between day jobs and, uh, and sort of dream jobs is you sort of dream of not having a boss and, um, I guess that's the main difference, but it's just a matter of when it happens. I did. I wasn't able to live from what I did till about age thirty, which is a which is a well, that's a pretty good age. I mean, uh, some people wait even longer or forever, and uh, and of course, some people luck out and have it very early on. Um, but I don't know any musician where it came that easily because I'm in a you know I'm I'm not in a world of child stars or um, reality TV contestants. I'm you know I'm I'm with a bunch of you know kids who never grew up, tortured artist types. Um, and in those cases, it tends to take a little bit longer because uh, they're trying to express what's inside themselves rather than copy an existing template. So if you're an original. It's going to take a long time. When you did start making it as as a living at 30, was that a comfortable living throughout your 20s? Were you kind of sustaining yourself? Yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm lucky being a trained musician coming a little bit from the jazz world that there was a sort of, there's sort of a working class version of, uh, of, of work that I was able to do, especially in other countries where I didn't speak the language. So for example, when I moved to Berlin in 1998, I was 26 years old, and um, my career began in earnest around age 28, 29, and then the money sort of started to come in around 30. But 
for those in-between years, I was able to play piano in a restaurant. I was a substitute for a piano player in a hotel. And uh, previous to that, in Toronto, I played piano in a lingerie shop where kind oh, really? of, uh, you know, cougar milf types would, would come in and buy lingerie for their weekend assignations. And I was there to sort of, you know, air quotes, class it up a little bit. Luckily, people always need that sort of impression that, oh, having a live piano player, that's going to make our joint classy. Whether or not that's true, I was able to at least take advantage of that. So um, I was able to transition pretty quickly from real grunt work, like licking envelopes or answering phones at a government agency, both of which I did. But pretty soon, through a network of musicians, I was able to um, you know, translate that to actually making you know making working class wage but at least playing the piano and that you know that has informed my work some of my work i go out of my way to make sure it functions as uh close listening music while at the same time can be good high quality background music and i don't mm -hmm. particularly think one is better than the other and i think part of that comes from working as a musician it keeps you humble it sort of keeps the artistic pretense down to a manageable level because you sort of realize what music is for actually so many people is background music and they deserve good background music so i do consider that that helped me um to get to where i am today at least and you know i played a lot of bar mitzvahs i played uh different wedding receptions and um you know uh i'm, I'm grateful that you know, people wanted live music for those things because it is nonetheless an audience and it is a shot of adrenaline related to your music and it lets you dream. Go, okay, if I could do that, now imagine that these people were listening to my own compositions, you know? And so it sort of gets you to one step closer to that reality. So I was very lucky in that my musical skills were of a certain kind that they could translate to this very real world application of music. Whereas I think if you're a, you know, if you're a guitarist in a punk band, there maybe isn't quite that other world where you can sort of go and, and, um, and still nonetheless make a little bit of cash playing music. Um, and, and that, you know, my musical training and my sort of, um, my jazz sort of background helped me mm -hmm. do that. It helped me pass in polite musical society, so to speak. You mentioned there about, you know, there, there is a working class element to it. And then there's also this very highbrow element element to playing piano. Is, well, is that something you've it, thought much about? It, it's sort of a working class person's idea of a, of a highbrow instrument, isn't it? I mean, that's why I ended up playing in a lingerie store, because this, this dude who ran the store was like, I know what this needs. It needs to be classy. But like anyone who really, that's not going to change the very transactional nature of what a, a lingerie shop is, you know, it's, it, it doesn't become Carnegie hall just because you have me there, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. so, um, look, the piano is the old Joanna. It's also like the, the instrument that's in the hallway of every middle, uh, at least class home up to upper class, certainly from the 19th century onwards, it was sort of the, uh, the laptop or iPhone of its day, if I can use a really crappy metaphor. Um, but it was sort of the aspirational piece of technology that meant, oh, you know, we're going to have music in the home and maybe our kids will take lessons. It was very aspirational. So it kind of ran the gamut, I would say. Um, if you were really rich, 
you didn't just have a piano, you had a string quartet playing for you at your soirees, you know? <laughs> uh, so there is a difference. Um, but um, yeah, the piano is the great reducer. I mean, you hear it in rap music, electronic music, pop music, it still exists in classical. It stood the test of time, that instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and it is the great sort of purifier of music. It's, it's what enables me, for example, to play a version of Last Christmas by Wham next to an old Christmas carol on my Very Chilly Christmas album. The piano is what makes it possible to not hear the synthesizers or picture the fuzzy sweaters or the snowball fight from the Last Christmas video. It's what enables you to get a clear shot at the musical material. And therefore, all genres and epochs of music making become equal in the eyes of the piano. And, and uh, that's why it is so versatile and ubiquitous. You've had such an incredible lifetime going to college to, to study a, a more formal training of music education before moving to Berlin and seemingly doing, you know, having fun with it with your friends. Were, were there any moments that during that time that, you know, you really had to, to fight for your vision? Is it always a fight for your vision? It's, it's always a fight for the vision, but, but I would say that um, it took me a while to sort of grow the pair to be able to do that. So when I first came out of college in Canada, and shout out to Canada's education system where university is virtually free. I mean, you pay, I think I, think I must have paid a few hundred bucks every year to, in administrative fees to go to what's considered a very high-end college called McGill University in Montreal. And uh, it's just wonderful that it's so accessible to everybody there. And uh, I, I really owe a great deal to that experience, not only for educating me in music, but also showing me what I don't want to do. It, you know, it, it, it really lets you measure yourself against the best and worst of you know, the institutionalized nature of music. And so it made me who I am, not by what I embraced there, but also by what I rejected. And so when I came out of there, um, it just took me a while. I think my first attempt at uh, really professionalizing myself as far as an artist, I signed a record deal with Warner Brothers, Canada. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, the problem was I was very eager to please, and the, the, the album just came and went. It was one of those crash courses in realizing, well, if you're not being yourself, it's just not going to work. It doesn't matter if you have the record company muscle behind you because people can inherently smell a fraud, and I was a fraud. And so it took moving to Berlin to kind of – allow me to go inside myself and be less aware of what all other musicians were doing, therefore less pressure to conform. You know, when you get to a place like Berlin, you don't speak the language. It's culturally so different. Um, I suddenly realized, okay, I'm not really aware of what I'm, how what I'm doing is playing. Um, and so you, you, in a really wonderful way, become more blind to yourself and you start to listen to yourself more and it drives you inside yourself. And I always maintain that everything's there already. You don't need to know what other musicians are doing. Avoid those top 10 lists. Don't, don't watch where any trend is going because your musical or creative personality is likely almost fully formed by the time you're 10 or 11 years old. It's all there from childhood when you have this involuntary taste. And I talk a lot about the difference between childlike involuntary taste and 
a more decided, intellectualized, self-defining taste that we get when we're teenagers. I sometimes wonder if that can ruin a, a piece of art that you're making. I, it absolutely can. I mean, uh, I wrote a book about Enya for this very reason. I talk about guilty pleasures and this idea of which is your true taste? Is your taste the one where you uh, are in reaction to your older brother's taste and decide that you're going to be different than him? Or is it you know, something linked to a time when you maybe don't even have a memory of it. And that's what's actually driving you creatively. So the closer you are in touch with that, the more yourself you'll be. And and then, ironically, that's when you'll start to find your, your audience, I would say. That's quite a scary thought, isn't it? Trying to be in touch with something that you can't really grasp or think of directly. Well, uh, entire religions and schools of meditation are have been created in order for us to be more instinctive and uh, have a direct line to something that you can't put into words or concrete visual memories, absolutely. Uh, but there are ways to do it. One of the reasons that being on stage seems to be the focus of my creativity. You know, I always feel like when I'm in the studio writing music, that's not my artwork. I'm creating fuel for the real artwork, which for me is my concert, my ever-evolving concert now for the last two decades or so. And the reason is, when you're on stage, you can't have that comfort to overthink, judge, or reflect. And that's where you want to be. So when you get up on stage, you are blind to yourself. You kind of turn on a tap, and whatever comes out, comes out. That's why I prefer to focus on that. That's what I tend to, you know, if I'm mentoring other musicians, I started a little music school, self-financed, called The Conservatory, which I've been doing for a few years now. It's in Excellent. It's in uh, different cities across the world, bringing people right. from different countries together. And I focus a lot on very uh, strict constraints on composition in order that they can trust their instincts so that they can't say, oh, I feel like I want to do a little something like this. You've already lost if you've decided that. And so if you create time limits, heavy amounts of constraints, you force them into a kind of benevolent discomfort, which brings out instinct, which means whether you like it or not, you're in touch with that very primary creative material from when you were a kid. Being on stage is the same. It's fight or flight. It's instinct. It's adrenaline. And what happens on stage, if you really let out the animal, uh, might shock you, but it's you. And audiences will, honestly, they will connect with it. And it's, a, it's about how much of yourself you're really willing to let out, positive and negative. And I say animal because in every language, to be on stage uses some animal metaphor, right? We say a ham in English. In French, it's bête de scène, stage animal. In Germany, it's rampensau, which is a stage sow, which is literally the female pig. So the imagery is like a sweaty, dirty pig rolling around. And that's, that's honestly where you want to be. That's, that's, that's what audiences will fundamentally relate to in the end. When you look at the biggest moments of you know your, your 20s I suppose are there any moments that really stand out where you you know you learned something about yourself or you learned something about your craft or the direction that you wanted to go in well prop most 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 importantly was that failed attempt at a major label career in Canada that certainly was like the music college that I that I wished I could have you know uh attended and 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 the negative lessons of, of having all that hope and then realizing it didn't work and then having to take stock and find out why. And that proved to be the engine that sort of rocketed me over to Berlin where I could sort of hit reset and say, okay, this time I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm going to be more and more myself. 
as unlikely as this combination of musical seriousness and um, and ridiculous humor seems on paper to not work. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the exception that makes this work. Um, those were sort of the two elements that I pushed under the rug in my Canadian career because in Canada it was you know the 90s it was very much a serious indie rock scene so to be funny or to be musically virtuosic were pretty much the two things that you couldn't do so of course I, rep- I repressed those things and I sort of rounded off the edges and hoping that I would fit in there and then when I said okay that didn't work and I said okay I'm gonna go to Berlin and now it's going to be only those those two elements because that's really who I am in the end. And to me, it became clear, A, from watching rappers who have a very similar, um, very serious workaholic um, uh, sort of uh, playing within the system in order to overthrow the system kind of approach, uh, coupled with a very a real joy in the superficial aspects. And I mean that in a positive way of music making the image interviews, what you say, provoking people, humor, most of all, um, that touch of humor and sadness that's in all great rap and great rap personalities was sort of also what made it seem possible to me. I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not from the hip hop culture. Uh, I, but I can take a play, a page from this playbook, so to speak and see that it's mm. it's not a choice between being serious and ridiculous. You can be both at the same time. And why? Because, again, if you're in touch with your inner child, as much as I hate that expression, well, children are occasionally serious and ridiculous going from one moment to the other. So if you look at it from that yeah. perspective, then there aren't all these false choices between art and commerce, between serious music and entertainment. It's all the same if you look at it through a kid's eyes. Uh, and that was the click that happened to me from from my failed Canadian career, I suppose. Growing up, I feel like we all have this disease of second thinking, second guessing ourselves. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, you, you even get it in sort of emotional decision making. and uh, But certainly professionally, uh, I would say comfort uh, and um, comfort leads to a kind of second guessing uh, because you have all this mm. sort of time and um, and uh, a sort of perceived sense of safety within which to start overthinking. Uh, you get further and further away from your instincts the more you do that, absolutely. And uh, that, that's, that is definitely the enemy. In rap, we've seen a lot of, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of artists, you know, building their own team, building their own labels, making their own shit happen for themselves. Is that an element that you've, you found inspiration in, that you followed that kind of idea? Yeah, well, since 2009, I've only had my own label, my own little team of people. I've got four people working for me in Paris. Uh, we publish my own music. And we, we independently or at least co-produce uh, my sheet music, which we do a, a wonderful business in. And it's a wonderful way for people to interact mm-hmm. with my music in a very deep way to actually channel me through them as they play the songs. Uh, we produce all of our own video content and, uh, you know, we, we co-produce all of our own tours. It's wonderful to be in control because when you fail, you can find out why and you can own it and learn from it. Uh, when you succeed, it's the same. Um, so I much rather fail and succeed with my own team than, um, than wonder why something works or doesn't work. And there's just a lot of energy waste in trying to convince people, uh, who, uh, who tend and this is not, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize here, 
but um, you know, they're working on multiple projects at once. And when I have my team of four people, they're only working yeah. on my project. And so you just suddenly realize um, the amount of time and uh, energy that can go into a project suddenly is exponential when it's your own team, your own small team. And uh, honestly, I don't miss those fights with the record company people. You know, there was something about wanting a daddy to give you money to make an album that was really in my thinking for a while. And luckily, my manager, now business partner at the time, really pushed me. And she said, let's, let's go independent. But I said, wait, I have to throw all this money out in the first place to make my, my, my own album happen? And, I, you know... And you have to really believe, you have to have faith that, that that will come back because you're the one in control and and the music will be stronger. And um, it means you can become more and more yourself. The internet and technology in general has really helped that be possible because now there are the power of the gatekeepers is so far diminished that you can find your audience yourself. And it's you know almost every day that someone will write to me on some social media and say, just discovered you went down a YouTube wormhole of your master classes and your concerts. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing that people can just hear your name, hear you on the radio speaking for a few minutes and then go into YouTube for six hours and they get a whole sense of your universe. Back in the nineties, before the internet, before independence, um, my God, you had to uh, go through so many gatekeepers so that one video would be shown on TV and then think of what are the chances of, someone being up up at night late enough to see it and get what you're doing. I mean, it's just, it's just so crazy to think of what an archaic um, uh, top-down system that was. So thank God that's over. And um, I'm so glad my, ma- my then manager pushed me to do that. There's really been no looking back. And, uh, you know, that first album was Ivory Tower, one of my biggest albums. You know, we did a sync with uh, the first iPad commercial, we had a little bit of a, a hit in the UK with "You Can Dance," and and I realized, wow, suddenly everything is 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 going well. Well, that's because I didn't have anyone trying to convince me to uh, get a remix from David Guetta so that they would have a single, let's say, which is what literally every record company person told me for previous 10 years that entrepreneurial side of it was that a language you had to learn or was it actually you know was it sort of set up as music industry talk but actually you know you can you can do it yourself well my dad's an entrepreneur you know i I always say my dad's basically a rapper he grew up very poor in algiers in algeria then uh you know his family emigrated to canada and he sort of his first job was you know driving a cab and eventually he started a a uh, civil engineering company doing infrastructure, little projects like little bridges and cities and, and ended up becoming like a, you know, a big time company. And he was the CEO. He's now retired. So he's a kind of get rich or die trying figure. He was a big believer in work and success. And you're defined by what you accomplish. And that has a good and bad side. But the good side was that it was a natural language for me to be an entrepreneur uh, in only the sense of uh, he'd always told me you have to keep your emotions out of your business interactions. And that's something as an artist, you often are looking for these substitute um, parent figures and you sort of, you know, help me do so I can do my thing, you know, mommy. Uh, And, and to think that 
just because you're such a great artist that people should help you is is not a great strategy. And you do have to, in a sense, keep your emotions out of it. And you do have to, whether you, even if you don't believe it, you have to sort of imagine that you are somehow removed from it and try to find the self-interest on the other side. I know it's a very transactional way to look at the world, and I don't use that in my personal life because I think that's not the appropriate place for it. But as soon as I started following that advice, things really did start working. And, you know, I know how to write an email um, to try to convince someone to either let me do something, to, to, to give me money to do something, uh, whatever, whatever thing I'm asking mm-hmm. for. I did sort of inherit that from, from my father, as well as sort of establishing a little bit of a culture. Even with only four employees, you still have to run the team. And the team is always going to be a reflection of the person at the top. And that's me. And uh, so I, I pay very careful attention to that. And I'm proud to say that the four employees, uh, you know, we have uh, 10 to 15 to 20 years experience behind us. It started with just me and my manager 20 years ago, but each person has ended up staying at least 10 years. And, uh, and that means that there's a real culture in our, in our little tiny company uh, where people are motivated. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and uh, that's definitely something I have a real privilege that I had this great role model in terms of my dad going from absolute rags to riches and uh, to be able to see that in real time as I was growing up. So that by the time I was in college, my dad suddenly had a, you know, a a, a rich guy's lifestyle essentially. And that was interesting to see each step along the way, a lot of challenges, almost bankrupt a couple of times, almost got fleeced by a couple of his business Mm -hmm. partners, uh, but made it through the other end. Does your dad have a sense of humor? He's got what I would call a German sense of humor, which means he won't make a good joke, but he appreciates a good joke. You know, the, the Germans, they malign them for not being funny. The Germans have a great sense of humor on the receiving end. They're maybe not great at creating jokes. And in a way, I would say the UK is almost the opposite. The UK generates a lot of humor, but it's received in a really weird way sometimes, like not real belly laughs. So they'll make a great joke, and on the other end, the person will sort of almost say, that's funny, rather than let go and laugh. Uh, And the Germans are kind of the opposite. You'll make a great joke. They can't make that joke, but when they hear it, they'll let go and laugh. And I I appreciate that about the Germans. Do you think, I mean, maybe it's a stupid thing to even talk about because it's so damn obvious, but living in Paris, living in Berlin, you know, it's, you know, anyone knows when they go on holiday, you know, you, you, you can really feel when you're in a different culture, you know, you have different ideas, you have different emotions sometimes. Can you look back at the and see where it really changed your personality? Well, hmm, you know, in Berlin, there's a real separation between um, underground culture and overground culture, let's call it. So the, the two don't really overlap. And so to sort of flourish within the underground culture, it felt like you were in this separate zone like this this invented place it was in a way a sort of bohemian utopia in many ways but there was a feeling that there was a real ceiling on it and at a certain point i felt that i wanted more growth i wanted the chance to professionalize myself while still keeping a foot in my underground world that was always something i thought i would be able to straddle And the Berlin underground for those first four or five years that I was in it quickly made me realize if I stay here, I'm going to hit a ceiling and it'll, I'll just, 
that'll be it. You know, just the back of my head is going to be hitting the roof for the next three decades. And slowly, as I started to spend more and more time in Paris, I realized Paris was just the exact opposite. The minute something bubbles up on the underground, it's immediately co-opted and sucked up into the professionalized uh, creative industry. So, you know, that's why a young underground anti-establishment fashion designer will quickly suddenly become the head of fashion at Louis Vuitton. Or that a young electronic producer instantly will be hired to make an album for some 45-year-old or 65-year-old legend. That's kind of what happened to me as I started to release my records there. I had offers to produce albums for Jane Birkin, for Charles Aznavour, really seriously uh, institutional uh, musicians. And suddenly I had, a, I had a window into how professional the music industry can be. And I was sort of going back and forth between Berlin and Paris, and it felt so schizophrenic to, to sort of be in both of these worlds. But it's sort of what I've continued to do to this day, where I'm still, you know, my next interview is with a classical music magazine in France called Pianiste Magazine. And we're going to talk about all the classical people I've collaborated with. We won't cover a single subject that you and I are covering or that I was doing with a rap website uh, in Germany about my mixtape with Todd Latte called A Very Chilly Mixtape, The Coldest Crimbo, if I may plug it. <laughs> awesome. um, and, and, uh, and, and that's a wonderful thing to feel like I can co coexist with all these different worlds and genres. It's really a dream come true for me. So that Berlin-Paris dichotomy taught me that, that there is there is advantages to all of those. But if I only were in the Paris world, I would miss that feeling of being connected with the wild, savage, kind of anti-establishment attitude of the underground, which is still important and feeds me. Uh, at the same time, to have stayed in Berlin and not have had that chance to professionalize and to sort of go undercover in the, in the straight business world, so to speak, um, is an, another opportunity I wouldn't have wanted to miss. So it kind of taught me that I, I have the versatility to, to slip into different worlds. Maybe it's a Canadian thing. Canadians are good at slipping in and out of other cultures. There's something about our inferiority complex that means we're always willing to assimilate. I'm also Jewish. Jews are sort of pretty famous for assimilating wherever they go as an exiled culture. And I'm speaking, of course, of more the Ashkenazi Jews who culturally were sort of generally forced to flee their home countries. Uh, I'm a non-religious Jew, but I feel like there's a cultural component that sort of informs uh, what I do as well. So there's something about being able to, to slip into a, a, another culture, sort of under cover of night and sort of do my thing and uh, make musical friends there. And then the next day sort of have to slip into another. And uh, I love it. It feels like I'm a, I'm a spy with like 10 different passports. You've talked a lot about your love of harmony, your love of, you know, exploring harmony and how, you know, that's a, that's a massive part of what you do. And culture is harmony, right? Yes. Well, harmony is tension and resolution. And, and that's what you get in, in, in cultures. You find those tense points, which make it interesting. In Canada, for example, English Canada doesn't have a lot of tension. And it's no surprise that, that culturally it's the, it's the French side of Canada that produces the most vibrant culture. That's almost not arguable at this point. It's because there's this tension in the French world. There's this feeling of, you know, we have this uh, oppressive English overlord um, 
linguistically, culturally, and they react uh, with this tension. And and within that, you find these beautiful moments. I mean, just look at the motor of American culture is African American music, and look at comedy. Look who the look who the funniest comedians are. It's where the tension is. And uh, so culture is all about tension and resolution, and that's what harmony is. It's storytelling, creating these tense moments. And, and if music has no tension in it, um, its storytelling is, is different. Now, I'm talking a lot about Western culture. I think there are other cultures where the music is more, at least superficially, seems less tense in that it's more repetitive. Uh, you can even argue that electronic music, in a way, um, is repetitive and doesn't have tension, at least in the harmonic sense. But make no mistake, there's always tension. What is the break and the drop other than a creation of tension and resolution? So different cultures, different styles of music will always find a way to do storytelling. Music truly without storytelling, it's just stuff we don't listen to because it's crap. Are you friends with Brian Eno? Have you had many of these discussions with him? I, I met him once through a, a common friend, the comedian Peter Serafinowitz, and we went to his um, his studio in London. And it was really interesting because his studio is a giant room, but in fact, there's just this sort of a few curtains put up around one corner of it. And that's where he actually works. And and so we went over there and he, he served us some tea. And at some point he went and recorded a vocal and the way he did it, it was on the speaker. So we could hear him from the other side of the room doing a vocal for a new piece he was working on, which to me was like, uh, you know, on the off chance I'm going to do a vocal, I got to be alone and with my longtime engineer. It's really intimate. But somehow he had figured out that, you know, music is performance. and He was going to essentially perform for us. At one point he just disappeared. We didn't even know what he was doing. Suddenly I hear blaring out of the speakers his voice on top of this track i'm like what's going on there and he comes out he's like oh yeah i just did that vocal you know and that was a really great i mean you you expect him to sort of work in a counterintuitive way but uh that was more than i could handle it was uh, incredibly it was like the eno experience that you would have imagined on steroids <laughs> amazing that's such a wonderful story have, have you have you spent much time in in London at studios around here? Yeah, here and there. I work a lot with Todd Lati. Um, uh, we make a lot of beats for rappers. And as I said, I, I sent him my Christmas album back in September. I said, yeah, I'm releasing this in a couple months. Fancy doing a remix. And it turned into a, a whole five-track mixtape with uh, Coco, Nadia Rose. I rap a bit on there as well. It turned into a full-on rap family party kind of thing. And um, so we've been in, in and out of studios quite a lot. And, um, you know, I've got my, my London musical family. Jarvis Cocker mm -hmm. is kind of my... My, my musical big brother. We did a whole album together on Deutsch Gramophone called Room 29 uh, a couple of years back. And he features on two songs of my Christmas mm. album. A very chilly uh, Christmas. And, you know, a very chilly Christmas. We see each other socially really often. It's, it's really musical family in that, you know, the, the line between the personal relationship and supporting each other uh, and celebrating each other personally sort of just morphs into the musical relationship very, very, uh, very easily. Mm. So we're always aware of what the other are up to and giving each other a helping hand, whether or not uh, we're actually collaborating and you hear Jarvis sing on my track or me play piano on his uh, All Night Long remix a few mm. months back. Uh, even if we're not there present, on the, sonically present, we're still there in terms of, uh, you know, helping each other through whatever the next moves are going to be. And it's great having that musical family 
whether it's Leslie Feist, uh, the Canadian singer who's mm-hmm. also on my album and who I have a 25-year-long, very close uh, professional and f- friendship with, whether it's Boys Noise, uh, the producer Boys Noise, uh, whether it's Igor Levitt, the classical pianist who I, I've been composing for. Uh, it just transcends a lot of genres and, and locations, and um, it's very precious to me. Is Jarvis and Feist or, or anyone else, uh, you know, who who's your go-to to... To, to phone up and, and think like, look, I'm not sure whether to do this or that, you know, can we chat about it? Yeah, both of them. Uh, I, I, it's it's more about seeing each other in the same room, playing each other what we're working on, uh, taking the time to really hang out and catch up. And um, often you need enough time that, you know, the help you're asking for isn't often the help you need. And you sort of realize when you can spend a whole weekend hanging out with your buddy who knows you well, personally and creatively that you realize oh this isn't a question of whether i should put this song first on my album this is a much more existential question about where i'm going for Mm. example it's a little bit like therapy you go to therapy because you think you have one problem and then you realize your entire life is a problem (laughs) um and 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 i think that's that's often how it is as well when you really catch up with friends and have enough time that's not about one 20 minute phone call but it's about you know a whole you know, a few days where you get to be together. I just filmed a Christmas special, which is going to be uh, available to watch on December 23rd via my website. It's called A Very Chilly Christmas Special. And we did like an old-fashioned, you know, Christmas special with sketches and guests. And actually, Santa Claus goes to therapy as one of the sketches. (laughs) Uh, But of course, the music from my album and Jarvis was in Paris because he lives half in Paris, half in London. A bunch of my French musical family were, were on hand as well, the DJ Techie Latex and a bunch of different people. And we got to hang out for about three days rehearsing and shooting this special. We were working, uh, which meant that uh, we were allowed to be together. But of course, it was just a great chance to hang out. And there was huge stretches of five or six hours backstage where nothing was happening because they were working on some camera rehearsal. And we got to hang out and you know, all of a sudden Techie's playing his new DJ mix and Jarvis is talking about the, the new album that he's working on, the second Jarvis mm-hmm. album. And before you know it, we're, we're suddenly plotting, as we call it. And it just sort of happens like that. We had three days and all these revelations happened. And and uh you know uh, new ways of looking at how we're working suddenly came about not because i had an urgent need to have a question answered but just because we were there hanging out and that is so precious and you know some of my other collaborations might be more high profile like with daft punk or drake but those aren't my buddies that's just that's just you know sort of going into uh you know it's like suddenly being in this other world for a few hours and you just, I just want to be useful mm. to them in that mm. moment uh, because they obviously have their buddies and their people that they have, their musical families. I'm just sort of a, a brief tourist coming in to do something very specific. But that ongoing, decades-long friendship involving collaborations, advice, personal milestones, crises, that is so meaningful. And that is one thing that um, you'll never stop believing in 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 what you're creating when you have the sort of loving gaze of your musical family uh, to see yourself through. Is that how you tend to make plans to, to schedule just to kind of go with the, that's a cliche, isn't it? Go with the flow. I was going to say having these conversations with friends, you know, is that how you tend to move forward? Well, yeah. 
just like overthinking is going to is going to be the enemy, you know, overplanning is the enemy of course because you might miss out on being inspired by something and that, that's that's sort of why the idea of the master plan is is uh is something you do in retrospect. You can mythologize all these strange spontaneous decisions you made by looking back and saying, "Oh, of course it seems logical that I wrote for a string quartet and did the album chambers and explored chamber music." However, I only got the idea because I met the Kaiser Quartet and kind of got a musical crush on them, started writing music for them. I never thought to myself, I should do an album with string quartet until I met those guys. And that's how it always works. You, you, you have to wait for the events to happen in your life to lead to something rather than to think that you're going to make that decision based on your own scant knowledge of yourself. You know, you have to surprise yourself. An artist learns about themselves by making things not the other way around. Um, and so I, uh, I need those moments of openness so that the next inspiration can sort of reveal itself to me. Mm. If I planned out what I was going to do based on what I think would look good, um, then, then I would be just missing out on many artistic opportunities. I love that. Thank you so much for all of that. It's been a really, really great chat. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. So there he is. When I listened back to this episode, when I was editing it, I realized how many, how many wonderful things he said, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm thankful. I'm going to, I think I'm going to take some of that advice or follow some of the ideas that he talks about there. So I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. If you did, please share it around, get the link, share it on Instagram and Twitter. Please let people know about the show at this episode. Thank you for listening. Cheers. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.